Welcome back for a special episode of People Not Patients from H&K Strategies, the conversation about modern healthcare that speaks to people, not patients. This episode being the first one that we're recording remotely, because the world has changed a lot since the last time we sat in front of our mics, Jess, and I, I miss your face already. I miss yours too, Jesse. Hi, everyone, and, and to our listeners. We're not really sure when this is going to air or where we'll be in the midst of this pandemic, but we wish you all a very safe journey through this. It's unprecedented times. There is a pandemic spreading across the world caused by the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, the disease it can cause. And while for many people and our listeners in particular, health is a priority either by choice or by necessity. Um, But what we're facing is a new experience, a health challenge directed at every single one of us. And with anything novel comes a learning curve. And in health, the consequences of how and what we learn are significant as there are lives at stake. When protecting the person next to you is just as important as protecting yourself, I think communication is never more important. And we're seeing a lot we can learn from at quite a pace. And I'm really hoping that today's conversation helps us make some sense of how health messages can change lives. That's absolutely right. Um, We're really lucky today to be joined by some in-house experts, um, hopefully going to help us make some sense of what the world is seeing and hearing right now. Um, First, I'd like to welcome to People Not Patients our global lead for health at H&K. He actually wears several hats, and I'll let him talk about that. But uh, David Bowen brings broad experience in healthcare policy, including pandemic preparedness. David, will you tell your listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, pandemic preparedness was a a blend of both the professional and the personal for me. Uh, I had the privilege of working on the staff of the U.S. Senate on the Health Committee, and we had uh, done some work quite some time ago on um, pandemic preparedness. And that preparedness became very real uh, on September 11th, 2001, um, when, of course, the the U.S. was hit with terrorist attacks. Um, and shortly thereafter, the Senate itself was hit with anthrax attacks. And so for me, preparedness, as I say, was a blend of the personal and the professional in that I remember actually discussing the uh, legal and legislative response to those attacks while waiting in line to get my nose swabbed for anthrax spores. Um, and as a result of all of that, we put in place a number of structures for pandemic preparedness both immediately after that and just there and in the years after um, that are being used uh, now, finally, uh, in the U.S. response to the novel coronavirus. Um, And subsequent to 9-11, we also encountered SARS, um, which, and I'm so glad I was wrong, I feared would be something that looks a lot like this. Of course, it too is a coronavirus. Um, and it's, uh, it's so difficult to see what's happening in the world and seeing all the scenarios that we were so concerned about now play out. David actually wrote a really informative piece for PR Week back in February. Um, it's a working guide for communicating around the novel coronavirus. And unfortunately, it has only become more relevant in the following weeks. We'll get more of his advice today, uh, but we will also share a link to the original article with the podcast. It's really, really useful. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on, David, and thanks for joining so early from Washington. I wish we didn't need your expertise right now, but I am so glad that we as a team and an agency, our clients, and also our listeners have the benefit from your expertise and that of someone else who's very dear to us, our first ever repeat guest on People Not Patients, 
Dan Barry is a colleague of ours at HK London, and he leads our smarter behavioral science team at HK, along with his colleague, Dr. Adam Flitton. They've spent the last few weeks doing something really interesting, testing current public health advice around the novel virus and testing different variations of exactly how these messages are communicated. Dan, a big welcome back from across London. Hey, uh, thanks for having me back, um, albeit at such difficult times for everybody. Um, but yes, as you said, we know um, that communications really matter at times like this and, and the detail of the precise words can often really matter. So that research we've been working on and have now finished was looking at, well, what are the precise words that can best help land those public health messages with our audiences? So of course, we're not reinventing that public health advice. We're helping communicate that in the best possible ways, which we're all trying to do right now through uh, businesses, public authorities, and as we talk to each other and our families, what are the best form of words? So we've conducted some quite extensive research with uh, a big panel of people, a thousand people across the UK, and we've tested things like what are the best messages to really help people um, wash their hands as frequently and for as long as they are being advised to, or to self-isolate potentially over weeks, weeks and weeks. This is going to be hard or not not to panic buy we're all seeing that when we go to the supermarkets people are beyond making sensible preparations for people so in all those difficult circumstances there's lots of new advice and lots of new things we need to do all of us but precisely how we communicate that can make a really big difference and that's where behavioral science helps us take some of the guessing out of that it helps us get to what should those words be and that's what we've just finished testing Words matter, and when they can help us make better decisions when we're bombarded with messages, I think the fact that we have a scientific approach to how to get those words right and help people sort through the clutter and make good decisions for them, their families and communities, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and you are about to go on Sky News and talk about the results of your research. So we feel like we're getting a bit of a scoop for the podcast. I feel the same way. It's been a, a hard, strange time. I mean, truly, uh, it's easy to feel really unmoored right now, um, and that's natural. But talking to people like David and Dan helped me make sense of what's happening around us and what could be coming. Um, with that in mind, I'd love to dig in. Um, David, if I could start with you, could you talk a bit about the role that communications plays when it comes to pandemics? And what about this one in particular? Communications is tremendously important um, in public health and never more so than during a severe disease outbreak or a pandemic as we're currently in. We're used to thinking of other aspects of that response in scientific terms, whether it's medical treatment or developing vaccines or uh, looking at the sequence of the virus. And that's absolutely right. Those need to be scientific. Those need to be based on best principles and guided by data. But those same principles apply in equal force to communications. Um, and that's why I'm really excited about the work that Dan and the team have been doing. Yes, there are principles about how to communicate. Um, there are principles that involve saying what you know, not what you speculate, um, about combining empathy with uh, authoritative expertise. But within those principles, there's going to be a lot of room for figuring out what precisely works best for different people in different circumstances. And that's guided by data. And that's really the approach that Dan and the team take. It's not some theoretical approach to behavioral science. It's 
let's look at the principles and then let's test those by empirical experiments and figure out what the optimal communication strategy is, just as you would do the same sort of thing for figuring out what the best medical strategy is. And I'm really excited to uh, learn more about the results of those studies. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. Uh, Dan, what would you add to that based on what you've seen in the research? David's exactly right. There's there's two types of evidence we bring to this. There's those principles we know from behavioral science, and in particular, the types of things that have worked in similar challenges. This is a new challenge. We, we don't have anything off the shelf that we can be certain works, but it's looking through things that have worked in similar public health campaigns, for example, around other pandemics or seasonal flu, for example, vaccinations. So it's bringing in some of those insights. And then, yep, I completely underline what David said. It's it's testing and testing in the different testing contexts. That's so topical right now, because that's the only way to be sure what works. Human behavior and decision making is complicated. Things are moving very fast. So the only way to be certain what works is to take some of that guessing out of it and, and use the data couple of things that we found firstly is is actually a really reassuring message you know these are tough times for everyone but one of the themes of messages we found works best for instance in encouraging people to wash their hands more regularly or um, sticking with self-isolation advice is appealing to that better part of people's nature actually so if if a message let's say on hand washing said wash your hands regularly for 20 seconds because this helps protect vulnerable older people, that is actually significantly more effective than a call to action based on protecting your own health. We saw similar results with self-isolation, you know, protecting your family and other people tends to be a way to motivate people better than because they're told to by the government or to protect themselves. So that is data-led, that's the result of the testing. It was quite a nice thing to find as well at these times that we do see communities coming together. I live in London, which maybe um, is not known to be a place where people look out for their neighbours and people around them. We, you know, does anyone ever make eye contact with a stranger on the street in London? But that's changing. People, you know, neighbours are talking to each other. and, And it's nice to see that the data backs that up. I think that's really interesting, Dan. And one of the things that I hope we talk about in a future conversation is when we're through the worst of things, the good things that have come out of this, the behaviors that we're loving seeing, whether that's, you know, I'm actually doing squats when I wash my hands and I am not a daily or multiple times daily squatter, to be clear. Um, so I think these these things that we're seeing protecting our neighbors, thinking about vulnerable populations, appreciating our health services and our teachers a tiny bit more, um, that's for a future conversation. But I really want to, to hope that that's something good that comes out of this. One of the things that we're seeing anecdotally right now, which I'm sort of becoming obsessed with, is the difference in how generations respond to the reality of, of the crisis itself as well as messaging on how to proceed. There was a tweet the other day from a staff writer at the New Yorker, Michael Shulman, and he said, this is purely anecdotal, but is anyone else noticing the trend of baby boomer parents who aren't taking this as seriously as their kids because they think they're immortal and want to keep going out for dinner and don't think of themselves as old? Bracket. Hi, mom. And as someone who, you know, is sort of still talking to her mother while who's, who's 76, I hasten to add, while she's at Home Depot, I was noticing the trend as well. We're also seeing now, apparently, the younger generation going on spring break and descending on the shores of Florida as usual. And 
let's just say, not social distancing. What do you make of these generational differences? Is there some significance there? Maybe David, then Dan. Yeah, I've been struck by the same pictures. I think, as as Dan said earlier, there is a different mentality that we need to get into in a public health environment. We're very used to being uh, responsible for our own decisions and looking at the impact of them on ourselves or on those really immediately around us. In a public health crisis, you're dealing with something that affects or you're dealing with your actions where they affect not just yourself, not just the people immediately around you, but the entire community. And I think there's, to put it charitably, a heterogeneity in people's uh, understanding of that or embrace of that. You have a lot of people doing a lot of things that are self-sacrificing, that have a community impact. Um, Social isolation is hard for everyone, particularly hard for people with specific challenges, but people are doing it, others are not. Um, And it's really hard to get away from the mathematical realities of this, the the way that diseases spread, diseases like this one in particular spread in a community. But when you look at those, you realize that this kind of social congregation actually propagates the virus. It's like throwing dry wood onto a fire. And unfortunately, these kinds of congregations are, I'm very afraid, going to spread a virus and not necessarily making the people who are at spring break sick themselves, but what happens when they go back to their communities? What happens when they see an elderly relative or neighbor or breathe on someone uh, if they are harboring uh, the novel coronavirus? It's clearly a concern. We clearly need to do a better job of conveying to people how important it is to, uh, to, to observe these kinds of restrictions. I'm reminded of uh, Chris Christie's, uh, who was then the, the governor of New Jersey, when Superstorm Stan- Sandy was approaching, he just said, get the hell off the beach. And uh, I'm reminded of those words when I see the pictures. Thanks, David. Dan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so we looked into this in our recent research as well, because if what we're trying to do is find the best messages, those may not be the same for everybody. It may be that general public health messages need to be tweaked somewhat to get the best effect for people of working age or parents who've got kids or people who've got older relatives. So we looked into that a little. What we found actually was a bit uh, contrary to expectations, actually. And if we look at the people who are least likely to follow that good public health advice, so for instance, on social distancing or regular hand washing, actually, those people tended to be younger people by quite a marked difference, actually. So over 60s tend to not disobey the rules as much as um, younger people. But when it comes to actually doing the right thing, especially at the extremes, like I don't care about curfew, I'm going to go out anyway. We definitely saw in the data that it's the younger people who are doing that more and the older people who are sticking to the good advice. I can speculate that that may be partly because who's hearing the messages. This is only speculation, but it could be that although this is completely all over the media and will be for some time, maybe some younger people aren't seeing that as much depending on the media channels they use. Which leads us to suggest that the types of organisations that many of us work in or with, maybe they have a role to reach younger people with different messages, but also just to reach them more if the current public health advice isn't cutting through. Yeah, that's really interesting, Dan. And it makes me think about early in the virus's spread, 
watching WHO lean into channels like TikTok. Um, I don't know, I haven't really checked up on that recently, but I found that that was a really smart sort of early intervention to sort of create a broader reach to these younger audiences. Anyone want to comment on the use of new and different channels and perhaps stepping out of our traditional public health comfort zone? I, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is the diversity of messengers who volunteered for this. And so channels are obviously part of that, TikTok being a really key one right now, but also Instagram, also Twitter. Um, I have a friend who told me yesterday that her new hobby was following epidemiologists on Twitter and made a list of five or six that she was really compelled by. And, and that was the way that she was both gathering information and then resharing what she felt was good intelligence forward. And I think those messengers, and Dan, I, I know that you've talked about this a bit as well, but we have to rely on everything. People need to hear this message from every angle. David Bowen said this yesterday, but it's absolutely right. We've got to keep calm and wash your hands. Well, maybe I'll just make a quick comment to say that I'm really pleased that public health agencies are using a variety of channels to reach people. I think one of the critiques that's sometimes made of public health agencies is that they have a can have a somewhat stuffy way of communicating with people. But of course, you have to communicate with people in the ways and through the channels that reach them. And that's everything from posters and radio and podcasts to TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. And I'm glad to see that many public health agencies are embracing that. And I know that we'll get to further comment on that later in the podcast. Great. And we'll get some links at the bottom of this recording for our listeners with a curation of the experts that we're finding really useful through this challenging period. Actually, my next question is for you, Jess. Um, I know that Dan just alluded to a lot about the community-mindedness that we've seen coming to light and some of the more encouraging details. Um, but I think it's also important to think about, um, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable and high-risk groups. What do you think of the way that risks are being communicated and how do we keep those groups of people from feeling even further isolated? I think that's a really great question, Jesse. Thank you for throwing it my way. It's one of the first things that we were communicating within our own team around this, which was how to quickly get people to adopt a community mindset. And one of the things that stood out to me is you, I, I run a team, which Jesse sits on, of people in the average age in our team is about 25. So it wasn't really easy to introduce the idea of this pandemic is coming and it's feeling pretty serious. And I need you as a team to quickly move from a, I'm okay, I'm young, I'm not going to get this mindset to uh, I need to do this for my team member who's sitting on the pod next to me. Because it's a belief that I think many of us share that this is a time where vulnerable populations and the elderly and other groups are at higher risk than others may be. And so I quickly asked the team to remember, it is not the job of anyone with an underlying condition to have to disclose that, to step into you know, owning an identity that perhaps they weren't willing to share before just because the novel coronavirus is coming our way. And so the mindset that I was hoping we would start spreading, sorry for the choice of words there, is remembering or assuming that the person next to you has an underlying condition and they need you to help keep them safe. 
So the mindset of someone going to spring break, it talks exactly to what David said is, if get off the beach doesn't really resonate because I'm young and I bought this new swimsuit and I had the ticket and I feel like jumping in a car with my friends and driving down to the beach, maybe the mindset is it's not the job of the person sitting next to me to tell me that they just had a round of chemotherapy or their housemate lives with Crohn's disease and is immunosuppressed or compromised, or perhaps even they live with something. So just to remember that uh, a lot of conditions don't express themselves physically. Young people live with them as well. And I kind of am just trying to get people to realize, you know, a pandemic sounds incredibly scary, but that shouldn't mean that someone should have to disclose a, a medical condition that they hadn't already disclosed to you. So certainly I was looking at it first as a team leader and as a, an employer. But really, I'm just now looking at it as a citizen. I think as I walk down the streets these days, when I'm obviously keeping a distance from my neighbors, I am trying to assume um, that everyone around me needs me to stay as safe as I am. So when it's you know day four or five into being self-isolated, still remembering to wash your hands and you know keep a distance and do the right things to protect those around us. What other thoughts do people have on that? I'd love to hear your views. I agree with you completely. This pandemic has unique aspects or unusual aspects in that it seems that people can carry it. We don't know how many or what percentage can carry it with few or no symptoms and can still spread it when they are asymptomatic. And that's one of the big differences between this coronavirus and the previous round of this in, in SARS, where it seemed to be that you were uh, only able to communicate it when you were more symptomatic, which made creating firebreaks around it a lot easier and ultimately successful. That fact really imposes a responsibility on people, on everyone, because none of us really know what our coronavirus status is. And we all are potential spreaders um, and all the people around us, uh, we, we can't, as you say, assume their underlying medical status, nor should they be required to wear that on a t-shirt as they walk around or as, as put it on their social media profiles. We just have to assume that people we're in contact with are at potential risk and act accordingly. That's really helpful, David. And I think the four of us agree the only t-shirt we'll be wearing these days in public is the keep calm and wash your hands t-shirt. Another nice result we had from the recent research we did was exactly that, the um, you know wearing T-shirts analogy. What we found was um, if we show to people that most other people are doing the right thing, whether that's not panic buying or you know not breaking rules to self-isolate, people tend to copy that. But one of the challenges we have right now, and this is understandable, is that our media is full of people doing the wrong thing, like interviews of people on spring break or... Or even you go into a store and you see empty shelves and it's shocking, right? And you think, wow, everyone else is panic buying. Maybe I should too. Um, but if, on the other hand, we actually reassure people with the true facts that most people are doing the right thing, that is a great way to encourage that to continue even more. So, for example, on self-isolation, we found that showing that positive social norm that most people would self-isolate if they were recommended to increased the number of people who would follow that by 10 percentage points. So from six out of 10 people to seven out of 10 people who would abide by the advice just by showing that actually most people would do that as well. So that's another positive finding from our research. And let's print that on t-shirts. I'd wear one. I think that's absolutely brilliant, Dan. Another thing that has been on my mind is, 
and I think Dan, you mentioned it early in our conversation, words matter. And, you know, we're watching social media proliferation. We're hearing our friends talk about it. I'm sure just like you, your WhatsApps are, you know, flooded with people sharing memes or, you know, trying to find the humor in this. I think words really matter in this case. And I was really encouraged, and I'm just sharing this in case it's also helpful for, for listeners or any of you. My dad had shared with me his way of looking at this, which is to frame social isolation and quarantine as we get there. I think David raised it earlier. The level of health literacy around this stuff is so low. And if that's something that can come out of this, that people start to understand that health and public health aren't things we can take for granted, and they're not things we can create just individual responses to. It's one of the things that I hope we can take from this. And I thought maybe I would just share that framing looking at this as actual, this is this is common sense in today's reality. So the quicker we can kind of get on board with that, notwithstanding the obvious challenges that it's going to create for people, but showing that this isn't an abnormal response to abnormal circumstances, this is quite a, a good response. Yeah, and maybe I can pick up on that. Um, this is another thing I've learned from uh, Dan and his team that we overweight those things that we can see. And for decades, thanks to the success of vaccines, we haven't had an enormous set of serious, serious disease outbreaks in North America, Western Europe. And we've kind of gotten out of the habit of thinking about what we do when there's a disease, an infectious, contagious disease that we can't control yet with a vaccine or with medicines. There are measures that you know would be very familiar to our parents and grandparents uh, when there were polio outbreaks um, that we're kind of relearning. But the kind of broadly community spread respiratory disease outbreaks are not things that we've encountered. And we're having to relearn old techniques and relearn old ways of thinking. You're not an island that the things that you do affect the community and the things that the community does affect you. And we're all having to get our heads around that. I'd love to pick up on that if I can. Things particularly that we now have vaccines for. I think about polio in particular. For a long time, and this is something that we've been talking about as a team for years now, we've seen this rise in the anti-vaxxer mentality. And there's an assumption that part of that is based on something called the availability heuristic, where your mind kind of searches for the most immediate examples and then makes a judgment call on how common or likely something is based on that. You know, one of the things that we always point to is the fact that we haven't had an outbreak or a pandemic um, or even an epidemic in so many years that you now have, you know, two full generations of people who are making decisions based on the most immediately available examples. And if you can't see it, it's easy to believe it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. I don't want to have to be in this situation to bring people back to science. But if this, if that is one of the outcomes of us getting through this as a global population, that would be critically important. Um, we can only hope that we will have a vaccine in the next two to three years. And I refuse to be more optimistic than that but that I hope that that brings people back to the amazing science that contributes to keeping diseases that are, you know, just as terrible as this one, and in some cases more so, off the planet. Yeah, I do think 
this pandemic has kind of reframed us as we're at least in the best presentation of us as we're all humans in this together. We are really facing a common enemy and we need to pull together, whether that's at the neighborhood level or the city level or even the global level. And I know that that's not universal, um, but there are certainly elements of that, the feeling that we have something in common with someone halfway around the world who's dealing with similar kinds of challenges. The debate on things can change in relation to facts. And I, I suspect the debate on vaccines will never be the same again. Picking up a thread there, um, you know, this is spreading around the world and uniting us in maybe undesirable yet shared ways against this common enemy. And we're starting to see countries and cities um, start to consider, and I think quite quickly and probably before this podcast airs, we're gonna see a lot more what we're calling lockdown measures put into place it's safe to say, I think, that we're going to start to see people that we know with greater frequency become sick if we don't already see that in our smaller communities. Um, and I think the lack of widespread testing is making it harder to track this. What specifically do we need communications-wise now um, as people are being told to stay home if they're symptomatic and call their doctors? Um, what specific kinds of messages are we looking to communicate right now? One that I have just noticed is missing, I think particularly in, in the UK, which is, I think it's really important to tell people who are symptomatic um, and not experiencing the most severe symptoms to stay home. But I think without telling them what to do while they're staying home, you know, this isn't something that antibiotics can treat. And while I understand the emphasis on staying away from anyone else, I mean, including in your house, um, I think that you would see less panic if you were also giving people, if you were seeing more advice for, okay, one of the inevitabilities here is that you are now sick. You are probably going to be okay, but you are panicking because this is a pandemic. You know how bad it could get. So here's here are a few easy things that you can be doing to maybe make yourself more comfortable and speed your own path back to health, and that will help other people in the process. Um, David, I think you mentioned that you'd actually seen some pretty good information on that front from some other uh, international sites. Is that right? Yeah, and to pick up on your comments, I would say that the one most crucial thing that public health communications uh, can achieve is clarity. You really do need clarity about if you're in condition X, you should do this set of actions. If you're in condition Y, you should do that set of actions and so on. So that you know, unless things go dramatically better than they are predicted to go, we will be in circumstances where there is more need for hospitals, more need for intensive care than we have capacity to fill. And so we need to be very clear about who goes where in what sorts of conditions, as you were saying, Jesse, and that has to be communicated clearly. And you're absolutely right. If you're not going to hospital, um, then what do you do? Uh, what are the measures you should take? These are the sorts of clear, concise, action-oriented communications that public health agencies uh, need to make. And part of that clarity is really condensing that communication to a few authoritative sources. It's not having everyone on Twitter sort of giving their own uh, here's what you should do. It's really funneling into a few good 
sources, whether that's someone on a TV press conference, the, the Surgeon General, the Chief Medical Officer, or whether it's a digital presence. And you said correctly, Jesse, that there were a few that we'd seen that were particularly good. I like the the Health Canada site. Um, I like the uh, the CDC site. But what they have in common is clear, visually friendly, easily followable kinds of links to give you that kind of clarity. And this is less about sort of pretty websites, and it's much more about clear, straightforward, unconfusing recommendations as to what to do in particular circumstances. I just want to say thank you to all three of you for the time today. Before we sign off, I want to close the way that we usually do, which is with three things. Um, If I could ask each of you for one piece of advice for just our listeners in the coming weeks when it comes to staying safe and helping others to do the same, what would that be? I'm going to jump in first. First one is a few years ago, we were sort of obsessed as a team with this little guy from America who was calling himself Kid President. I don't know if any of our listeners are aware of him, but he was this absolutely adorable little YouTuber kid from America. And he called himself Kid President. He got some fame on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And he used to say, treat everybody like it's their birthday. And I want every one of our listeners to treat everybody like they have a vulnerable condition. So if you're not following self-isolation guidance and best practices for yourself, do it for the person next to you. Um, And my second one is just thank a healthcare professional, thank a teacher. That's great advice. Dan? I would like us all to ditch the term social isolation or social distancing, because these are pieces of public health jargon. They, They actually mean physical isolation and physical distancing was actually now we need to be more social than ever just on the phone or on social media or FaceTime or shouting out of the window to our neighbours. So let's let's change those words because those words matter. And then maybe for me on an individual level, it would be be kind to yourself and be kind to those around you from a physical distance, but not from a social distance. And on a societal level, it's let's remember that while we all experience the same pandemic, we don't all experience it in the same way, that the burdens of this are going to fall unequally. And we really need to make sure that our response recognizes that and creates as much safety net and as much support as is possible for those who are bearing an unequal share of the burden of the pandemic. Thank you for those thoughtful responses team. I am incredibly grateful to all of you for joining this call on short notice. Um, To our listeners, we wish you a safe journey through this. If you have any comments or questions, please leave them here for us. Feel free to tweet us at HK Health UK, and we will do our best to connect you to the experts and expertise that we're finding solace and guidance in at really uncertain times. I think as a sign off today, we will direct ourselves back to the title of this episode, which is keep calm as much as possible, guys, wash your hands and know that, as David says, while the burden may be unequal, we are certainly in this together. Wishing you all the very best and look forward to hearing you next episode. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.